welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Kirk Schneider. He's a leading spokesperson for existential humanistic and existential integrative psychotherapy. He's an adjunct faculty at Saybrook University and Teachers College at Columbia University. He's also the author of 14 books, including his most recent book, Life-Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Kirk, thanks for being on the uh, program. And uh, we don't know that much about each other. And I've just read enough about you to realize that we're sort of on the same pathway here. So I'm very interested on your take on anxiety, which is a little bit different take than I guess we both would guess most people would look at it as. So I'm just curious, um, I know you've been very busy, 14 books is a lot of books, I've written three, which took a good share of my life away. So I don't know how you did 14. But anyway, um, I just wanna um, get a little background to your general flavor of your career in psychology and how you sort of came into this concept of existential integrative psychotherapy, which I think, by the way, is the future, but not historically the past. So I'm just curious about your background and how you evolved to your current state of thinking. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the introduction, David, and the uh, the, the overview. Um, I, I would say that I really came to this field as a very young child in the sense that my world was ripped open uh, by a great loss, uh, the death of my brother when I was about two and a half, and he was seven years old. And uh, it just uh, completely ripped open the routine and familiar life that I had up till then. I think my first memory really is of my parents weeping on the couch. And uh, there was understandably a, a great deal of anguish uh, on their part and, and my own. And I experienced what I've later come to call a, a great deal of groundlessness and helplessness, you know, a real uh, floundering in the void that, that he left. Uh, all the unknowns that it brought up, uh, fears of death and dying, of, of illness. Uh, I was a, a very terrified kid. Uh, and my parents were very psychologically minded. Uh, my father was a humanistic educator. He was teaching in the high school system at that time, but he eventually became a professor of education. And I grew up with articles by Rogers and Maslow and, and even Rollo May, who eventually became my mentor. And uh, my mother uh, was a radio and television spokeswoman, so kind of a pioneer in her own right. And she went into psychoanalysis after my brother died. And she had her analyst refer an analyst to me when I was six years old. So I was uh, quite... Uh, intensely introduced to psychology at a very young age. And it was an extremely formative experience with that psychoanalyst, probably about a year long. I describe in the book. 
So it sounds like in the big picture, we know there's lots of really difficult situations as a child. And it sounds like you had really quite supportive parents in spite of a really horrible loss. But I'm guessing just the whole flavor of the family changed dramatically after that loss. Yes, no, no question. Uh, and my mother, who I have the utmost admiration for, they, they both passed on at this point uh, in retrospect. Uh, but she, uh, she kind of dropped out of the scene for a while. She uh, had to take some time away from the family, away from me. Uh, my, my grandmother apparently raised me for some key periods of my early childhood, along with my father, but he was at work. And so it, it was a, a rocky road um, with, with them, but especially uh, with my mother, I think because I was most connected with her and the disconnection between us uh, because of that loss uh, uh, brought a great deal of uh, anxiety and, and fear in my life. Uh, you know, that, well, I think it was hard for her to connect with me because I was a reminder of him. Right. And he was sort of the apple of her eye. And it was very difficult for me to connect with her early on because I sensed her uh, in some in some way distancing from me. So, so I take it during high school, college, early education years, anxiety was a big factor for you. You had or experienced a lot of anxiety. Yes, yes, I I, I had uh, a lot of bouts with anxiety, especially as a young child. I it it hampered me in school. Um, but uh, the psychoanalysis was very important in helping me to begin to. Uh, move from a place of relative paralysis and uh, overwhelm with the anxiety to gradual curiosity about what, it. What phase of your life was that when you started to make that transition? I, I was about six years old. Yeah, so I was very, very young. Um, but when you were in like, like teenage years, uh, past the anxiety at that point, you're still having quite a bit of anxiety. Well, I still had quite a bit of anxiety, but I, I managed it pretty well until I hit graduate school, actually. And okay. I actually was around the age of onset for psychosis. I, I was well aware of that. Okay. I was steeped in psychology by that point. And uh, my, uh, a very revered professor of mine uh, gently challenged me to work at a local uh, mental asylum. In, in a very small town in Georgia, so at a graduate school in Georgia. And that combined with my readings of people like R.D. Lang and steeping in a lot of reading about psychosis and very challenging states of mind. And also my father, uh, who was divorced from my mother, long divorced at that point, but had a girlfriend who was just about a year older than me, and they came to visit. And I'm still not quite clear on what all got stirred, but it was a combination of, of events 
that had to do with him being there and visiting and the young girlfriend who was a nice person and a movie <laughs> that night I, I saw magic we all saw magic which is a horror film about okay. a, a mad uh, ventriloquist anyway uh and, and a note on my car when i got out of the movie saying you're going to die tonight something like that i mean really? i just experienced a kind of nervous breakdown uh and it, it hit me all uh, in one night and uh i instinctively I, I couldn't my father as helpful as he was couldn't really be helpful in that situation i woke up trembling i had night terrors how, how old are you i was about 22 so let, let me do a couple things here i like to unpack this word nervous breakdown because when i was growing up there was used a lot and i said i didn't think much about it I don't realize it's one of the most worst experiences of a human experience, quote, a nervous breakdown. Yes. What what does the anxiety look like before the breakdown? Because the reason I'm asking is there's so many people in their teens and 20s is racked with anxiety and everybody sort of seems to think it's it's just so universal. I'm just curious for you what that looked like before the breakdown, what it looked like after the breakdown. Before the breakdown, as I said, I was... A pretty uh, carefree and you know normal young man, teenager. Um, I, I, I mean, I certainly had a very philosophical mind. I've I've always had that, and so I've I've stretched myself in terms of of inquiry, scholarship, etc. And I was very steeped in the field, but. Uh, but it was manageable. I think I, I probably had some hints of the anxiety, some fears that still would come up, maybe you know, with scary films or situations, books. Um, but I was able to handle it. It, it was a, a real shocker to me, actually, how, how much I was, was struck at that time. I, I just think I, I was particularly vulnerable, as a number of young people are around that age. I mean, right. I was... A, far away from home. My home was Cleveland area, far away from home in a very different atmosphere at the, uh, at the university. Uh, it was quite, quite a, a radical, open-minded, humanistic psychology school with great professors. Actually, a number of them disciples of Maslow or peers. Uh, but it was a lot to handle for a 22-year-old guy, at least for me. Uh, and, and then afterward, I had uh, a series of panic attacks. That was a lot of my, what my anxiety centered on was these panic attacks and also some perceptual distortions where, for example, I'd, I'd hear and see every word that a professor was saying instead of being able to, you know, get that fuller context. <laughs> and right. Strange. So things like that would throw me off and I'd go into a spiral of, of fear and overwhelm. The great thing is that uh, instinctively I phoned a peer who act actually was a, a blind woman who, uh, kind of a blind seer. Uh, and she did two things. She said, this too shall pass, which was a very powerful statement for me in, in that state, trembling. 
and, and she referred me to a woman named uh, Dr. Ann Gustin, who was an existential analyst uh, and very seasoned. And she was probably the most important therapeutic contact in my life. I spent the next nine and a half months with her. So I wanted to point out to the audience that um, this, I think the term nurse breakdown is interesting. It sort of covers up a lot of stuff, but almost, I would say almost everybody, a high percent of people who end up working with me and I work with them, and I'm not a psychologist, I basically have a structure that allows people to see their own issues, gives them some tools. Then if they have access to a psychologist or that type of help, it's really much better. So my work is sort of a framework of physiology and what causes what. But panic attacks are very specific and they're a problem. My demise started with a panic attack on the 520 bridge in Seattle, just bam, mm -hmm. out of the blue. And went from being a fearless surgeon to a crippling panic attack in one day or literally five minutes. Mm -hmm. I could not put that genie back in the bottle for almost 13 years. Wow. And I, so that's where I'm really interested in your concept of anxiety. Mm -hmm. But um, I want to go a little bit into, um, how you personally came out of that into the new awareness that you have. Obviously, obviously you've been yeah. extremely productive. Then in the next podcast, I really want to go into how you look at anxiety more or less as a gift in a way. So what we use to actually get things done as opposed to fighting it and how that works. But mm -hmm. I'd like to know your story in this podcast about personally what seemed to happen to actually yeah. transition out of that state, which is pretty miserable into a different state. Let me let me just say that I, I think what happened on retrospect, and that this happens to many people who experience acute anxiety, is that uh, in in some sense I I, I did regress to um, the, the 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 basic terror that I, I believe we we all share. That goes can that can, that can be traced to birth, and so we can go into that later. The, the whole theory around the trauma of birth and Otto Rank's perspective on that. I've I've come around to really seeing the uh, relevance of that to these type of situations because again that sense of helplessness and groundlessness was so potent for me at that time. A sense of the bottom dropping out. No no structure, nothing to hold on to, just similar to being thrown into sudden abrupt life without right. tools or equipment to handle it. Right. And I think what trauma does is it, it it's so jarring that it wipes out a lot of the skills and tools that we've learned right. intuitively or through others. Um, and sometimes we haven't learned it well enough and that's why we need to go into depth, some kind of depth therapy or similar, similar context to work with it, but threw all that out the window and I was that raw baby in some sense, floundering uh, with, with no, you know, no mooring. So, so how long were you in that particular state of just no mooring sort of loss? I, I tend to uh, use the term the abyss for that state, but how long yeah, in that state? I, I would say uh, probably in that acute state, five to six months. Um, and I attribute the relative li limitation of, of that state to the great work that Anne provided 
in our in our therapy and the, the main the main support that she provided was helping me to cultivate presence what i'd call presence uh, a, a, a deep ability to stay with no matter what came up thoughts feelings body sensations images associations in the in the uh, relationship itself and she she was beautiful at at being a holder of that relationship being being held in that way and being met i find is so critical especially if we're struggling at these deeper levels but she her modeling of uh, first of all seeming like a person who had been through a lot herself i could feel it and see it in her face and her way of being but also having a sense of humor and being solid and stable no matter what i went through like a rock all of that helped me to internalize a new relationship to myself that was much more supportive understanding holding and allowed me to what i say now to find ground within groundlessness <laughs> right a much so more solid ground so the relationship was obviously critically important yes yes so <laughs> this is a different topic which we may talk about on another day but i'm this i, I have two visions one is is to connect medicine with the science on which we've wandered a long ways off but the other one is if you don't have a healing relationship with your doctor yes. you don't have anything that's the core of everything is that healing relationship yes you can add on layers after that but without the core, I'll use the word that you just used, it's not, our treatments aren't grounded. We don't, I don't know you. You don't know me. There's no relationship. How can I, as a healer, make a decision about your life if I don't even know who you are? Right. So, the connection, so first of all, understand who you are is number one thing. But second of all, that connection itself is actually very healing for lots of different reasons. Yes. You know, the mirror neurons, quantum mechanics, yes. co-regulation, whatever you want to call it. Feeling safe with your clinician is a hugely big factor in healing. Yes. Modern day medicines has been taken away. So you had a relationship with a therapist that was very healing. And could you describe the healing journey a bit and then also jump to where you're at today? I mean, that's a that's I mean, going from crippling panic to healing, a lot of people go to crippling panic, but they never come out the other side, as you well know. Right, right. Well, well, I would describe it as a, a kind of a motion between terror and a gradual ability to become intrigued by what okay. was opened up to me, because this groundlessness on the other side of that is also possibility. Okay. Opens up, there's all kinds of, you know, room now that probably wasn't there before with the, the safe and familiar route. Okay. Uh, because you were more on a, you know, a track kind of thing. And now, you know, all that's sort of blown up, the old rules and regulations, et cetera. So that, sure, that can be terrifying and overwhelming, but it can also, if you have somebody who can support you through the process, with the process, uh, you can begin to discover new things. So I discovered new ways of um, 
well, being with all kinds of feelings uh, from deep sadness to anger to my fears of her, let's say, in our relationship. And I, I think I had natural fears. Right. Um, I mean, she brought up some, as the analysts would say, transference issues with my mother. Right. She was clearly, in some ways, um, a, a helpful mother figure. Uh, I has, hesitate to use the word corrective. It's a little too black and white. But she was certainly a healing, transformational figure in that sense for me. And so I was learning uh, in my relationship with her and in taking risks with her and her supporting those risks um, and, and her being very understanding and demystifying a lot of the fears that were coming up, some very old fears about confusion about my mother and, and about, you know, her dark side, if you will. Uh, and and so your, mother's, your mother's dark side or your therapist's dark side? My, my mother's dark I see. side. Okay. Yeah. Anne was able to help me both understand what was going on cognitively more and what was going on with my mother. So I mm -hmm. had you know, more of an overview of, of her situation and more of an understanding. Uh, and, and especially and most important at the affective and bodily level, you know, the, the, the relative nonverbal level of um, uh, being able to feel my feelings within, being okay. Um, I call it reoccupying parts of oneself that have been blocked off. It's a it's a literal and figurative reoccupation project. Got it. So I'm I'm experiencing life more with my whole body experience. So that's a huge body. point I like to point out. So always oh, probably three months ago I came up with a different paradigm in my brain of therefore of a tree in the soil, with the soil, you know, being your entire past and so the sequence, the letter sequence is connection, confidence, and creativity. Mm -hmm. And what I realized that one of my friends, which you would agree with, is just you have to feel to heal. You can't heal mm -hmm. unless you know where you're starting from. But being, being with your entire past is a bit challenging because a lot of it isn't so great. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is the roots of the tree go, so the solo we represent your entire past, as the roots become more engaged with the soil, the only question to really ask is what can I learn from the past to be with it and to be okay with uncomfortable feelings as opposed to self-esteem, whitewashing it, analyze it, trying to fix it. Just trying to be with the past and learn from it is a huge part of the process. Yes. And then confidence comes with the tools you use to sort of process it and learn from it. Then the real healing occurs at the top of the creativity. So getting into our next podcast for a second, to me, the anxiety and anger are survival reactions. They're supposed to be unpleasant. They keep us alive. They're actually gifts. And then your creative brain, which is a fraction of your survival reaction, can flourish away from the pain circuits. Is that creativity that yeah. you refer to in your book that it still takes energy to be creative. And so anxiety is your friend, not your foe. Yes. Right. Yes, but I should emphasize that I do think I, I am an integrative existential therapist. Right. In, in that sense, I do think that it, it, it really depends on 
the client's desire and capacity right exactly change as well so I, I i respect other modalities at certain points i just have a problem when people reduce healing to you know just very programmatic or medical strictly medical uh interventions that's, right that's cheating a lot of people who need well, to go I mean, deeper the, the are bottom line is, yeah no i agree with you i mean the bottom line is i try to explain to people look i don't want you to believe david Haskell. i don't want you to believe in my process i don't want you to believe in my book all we're trying to do is connect with what's there yes the body can heal it can heal itself yes I, I, me is allowing yourself to connect right but again it takes some skills to learn how to connect with your past Yes. everybody's so individual it the approach is definitely not formulaic right you'd agree with that right we do very much yes. so um we're going to go into the next podcast with a lot more details about what an existential existential type psychotherapy is and also i really want to um, sort out your idea about anxiety you know beyond a healing modality it doesn't have to be your enemy by any means and so i'm really curious about that so I like to just um, let people know how to access your work. I have your book here, Life Enhancing Anxiety. I know you've written 14 books. Um, this is a nice, concise read. Um, so how do we get a hold of your materials? Well, let me, let me just say quickly, we didn't even define life enhancing anxiety, but that's right. precisely what I've been describing here, which right. is basically enabling the person to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. Right. Or to be able to live on the edges of wonder and discovery and not just overwhelm and terror. Exactly. Uh, so the book is findable at uh, amazon.com, uh, at Barnes and Noble. I mean, the usual outlets uh, online, as well as University Professors Press, which is the a publisher a great press of humanistic works, by the way. And um, and they can visit my website. I have a lot of material about it at kirkjschneider.com. Perfect. So I'm anxious to talk to you in a bit about existential psychotherapy, how anxiety is an energizing force, not a life-sucking force. And so, yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show and thank you very much. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Kurt Schneider, for being on the show today and for sharing the experiences that helped shape his integrative existential psychotherapy practice. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.